0: Well, please, let's bow together for a word of prayer, and then uh, we will get started with our study tonight, and uh, boy, it's going to be cold tonight again, so let's, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so grateful for this opportunity in the middle of the week to pause, and I pray that you'll help us to set aside the cares and the frustrations and the burdens that perhaps are um, on our minds at this moment. And help us to focus our attention freshly on the Scriptures. And I pray that as I work uh, through this passage of Scripture and the Sermon on the Mount, that uh, you would guide our thoughts and uh, be with those today who are not able to be here because of sickness. I pray that you will strengthen their bodies. And uh, bless the children in the back as they're doing their classes. um, Help those classes to be uh, very Scripture-saturated and focused on you. I pray that you'll work in their hearts. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in Matthew chapter 5 again tonight. And uh, we are moving on to a new portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 33 through 37 together. Again, it's Matthew 5, 33, And I'll go ahead and I'll read it. Here's what the text says. Again, you have heard that it hath been said... By them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shall ye swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black, Though, maybe your spouse or your children have made one no longer black but white. Okay. Uh, Nor the earth, for it is his footstool, Jerusalem. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one here white or black. But, let your communication be, yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Now, the passage in front of us is a fascinating passage. Uh, Because the statement that it it makes is, do not forswear, and he says that you've heard it said, and so it leads us to lots and lots of different questions. So what I want to do is, first of all, give you kind of a summary statement, (coughs) and then I want us to kind of remind ourselves where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount, because all of these pieces are connected in some way. So, summary statement, God is righteous and faithful, therefore... He expects us to be honest in all our dealings and faithful in all our commitments. Let me read that again. God is righteous and faithful. Therefore, he expects us to be honest in all our dealings and faithful in all our commitments. Now, where have we been as we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount? Well, first of all, we've talked about the character of a disciple. And in verses 1 through 16, that entire section is dealing with this concept of if you are a Christian, a believer, you are a disciple of Christ, then how are you supposed to respond? How are you supposed to live? What's supposed to be going on inside of your heart and what's supposed to come out in the way that you deal with other people? And so verses 1 through 16, uh, going through, starting with the Beatitudes, but Going beyond the Beatitudes talks about what is the character of someone who is a Christian. Not to say that Christians can't fall short of this, okay, but these are generalizations for us to understand. This is how Christians think and act. Then we move from that that section, verses 1 through 16, to dealing with a proper use of the law. We dealt with that concept for quite a few weeks in talking about how we are to understand the law, what is its purpose? How is it being abused? And we see that in verses 17 to 20. Then from there, we move into a section dealing with uh, obedience to the law of God. And we talked about in verses 21 through 26, the issue of passion, anger, okay? It's one expression of passion. And then in verses 27 through 30, we get into another expression of passion, and that is lust, okay? And then from there, verses 31 and 32, we talk about the commitment of marriage. Tonight, we're going to look at obedience with our words. And what you'll see is that there are connections between all those things. For instance, we talk about anger and we talk about lustful passions. We're talking about people who are dominated by their emotions and they're being driven by passion as opposed to thinking clearly and doing what the Bible tells them to do. Or when we talk about commitments like marriage, it kind of makes sense that we would go from there to talking about, well, what do we do with someone making commitments with their words in other areas as well? Obviously, you know, when we talk about marriage, we're talking about a a deeper level of commitment. But the fact is, if we should be honest in one area, we should be honest in all areas. And if we're supposed to remain faithful in this area, well, we should also be faithful in these other areas. And so he's going to talk about the testimony regarding people and faithfulness to our word. So a couple of questions before we dig into this concept. First question. Does speaking the truth matter? I hope everybody in here says, of course, it does. Okay? But then the question is, well, why? Why does speaking the truth matter? Third question. What are some ways... That people in Christ's day were compromising in this area. And I think it will be very easy for us to go from where people compromised then to where we are tempted to compromise now. Because human nature today is not any different than it was there. Just because we're in a different culture, some of our customs are different, human nature is the same. We have the exact same kinds of problems on the heart level as they had in those days. And then the fourth question. How do we apply Christ's teaching correctly? So, we're going to answer those questions as we work our way through this passage of Scripture. So, truth number one, God is righteous and faithful, and He wants us to reflect Him in these areas. Such a simple statement. God is righteous, and God is faithful, and He wants us to reflect Him in these areas. That really is the heart of what we're looking at when we read these verses, verses 33 to 37. He's going to make the argument that you shouldn't have graduated levels of, well, if I say this, then you'll know that I'm really serious and you can trust me. And if I say this, then it's likely that I'm going to be trustworthy. And if I say this, well, yeah, it's 50-50. And if I say this, it doesn't almost mean anything, okay? He says that's not supposed to be the way that we think and act as Christians. So notice some of these statements about God's character. And then not just his character, but how it relates to how he deals with people. The first one is Psalm 11 verse 7. It says, The righteous Lord loveth righteousness. Now, one is saying he is righteous. That is his nature. That is his character. But then it's saying, because he's righteous, he loves righteousness. Maybe another way to put that is because God's righteous, he loves what is true and he hates what is evil. And if you have a decision to make, he loves what is correct and he loathes what is wrong. His countenance doth behold the upright. Psalm 19 verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, when he says God's judgments, the question is, well, what does that mean? Well, if we could evaluate what God does, and we had all the information that was needed to make a judgment about it, not that it's our place to do this, what we would see is that God's judgments, what he chooses to do, they are true, and they are righteous on every single level. That's what he's saying. Third. Psalm 116.5, gracious is the Lord and righteous. This is his character. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserveth the simple. I was brought low and he helped helped me. Now, what's very interesting about this passage is he says that God is righteous. And from his righteousness, he is gracious to people. And he's merciful to people. That means that there's got to be a standard. So he's looking at people who really don't deserve his kindness. Because they fall short. Yet he is gracious to them. He is compassionate toward them. And then he says that he preserves the simple. And that's again dealing with a situation of judgment. God looks at their situation. He looks at their difficulty. He looks at their plight. And because of the way he deals with them. They are kept safe. They are preserved. Psalm 119, 137. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Again, we see his character and how he deals with people. So the reason that God is just in his dealings with people and the reason that he does what is right is because that is his nature. That is his character. And I'm just going to share with you one more. 145. Verse 17, Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. I hope you see the connection. So because of who God is, it shapes what he does. His ways and his nature are not going to be in some kind of dissidence where they're fighting against one another. They're going to move together in unison. What he does is a reflection of who he is. Second thing I want you to notice is that out of all of these truths there is a very practical example that I think all of us should be very thankful for and I want you to turn with me to Titus chapter 1 verse 2 because this I think really helps encapsulate the concept of God's righteous therefore what he does is right and God is trustworthy therefore what he says we can depend on okay Titus 1 2 here's what it says this is Paul's introduction to the book of Titus, a letter written to Titus, uh, uh, going to, to work with folks in Crete, and he says this, it is in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. That's a really great statement, isn't it? Notice what he says, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Now, I've been showing you that because God is righteous, the way he deals with people is just. It's right. It's good. Here's the greatest example of this. So, the first thing that we see in that verse is the word hope, okay? What is hope? Well, hope is a confidence or an assurance. So, we have confidence that we possess eternal life as God's shoulder and will enjoy all the blessings of that position forever. So, when he says, "This is in hope of eternal life," he's saying This is the level of assurance that you have, or the level of confidence that you have. And then the second part is, well, what's the basis of that assurance? Well, the basis would be the object of our faith, which really rests on two pillars. One pillar is God's promise. The other is God's character, okay? So, I'll put it like this. If God is righteous, but he never promises, can you rest in that? Well, no, because he didn't tell you he was going to do anything, okay? If God promises, but he's not righteous, can you trust that? Well, the answer is a promise without the character to back it is kind of worthless. But when you have someone who is righteous and faithful and fully trustworthy, and they've promised to you, you take those two pieces, you set them side by side, and you know what that does? That upholds my hope, my confidence, It gives you this strong assurance. And that's what the verse is saying. The degree of confidence is built on the character of God and the fact that he promised. And here's the part that I really love. God who cannot lie. Did you catch that? So he's righteous. He promised and he can't lie. So if he made a promise, I can rest in it, 100%. That's what he's saying. And so the degree of confidence should be consistent with the kind of character of the one who made the promise. Truth number two. Scripture commands us to keep our word when we have sworn an oath. Now some of you said, oh, I, I thought we weren't supposed to swear oaths. <laughs> I would not be comfortable swearing oaths. oath. If anybody's ever been in a courtroom and they pull out a Bible and they say, Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God? Then you have sworn an oath, okay? Uh, If someone has gone into the military, you know, I, I promise to defend the Constitution of the United States. Okay, you have sworn an oath, so help me God. Okay, we, we do we have this going on in our society. In fact, you may not realize this, but there's lots of examples in the Bible of people swearing oaths. This is not absolutely forbidding that in all circumstances it's wrong. Okay, so if you uh, join the military and you uh, you promised to uphold the Constitution, you did not violate Scripture. Okay, or if you're in a courtroom and you have to take a stand and you do that, you've not. When you violated scripture is when you decide to break your word, okay? But we're going to get into that in just a minute, okay? So first of all, verse number 33, here's what it says. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear. Now, you may say, what does forswear mean? I'll tell you in just a second. The word has the idea of perjuring yourself, Okay? Again, you've heard it been said, of old time thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. Question, where in the Bible is that stated? And If you can't figure it out, it's because it's not. <laughs> okay, Just saying that, all right? So why were they hearing that? Well, they were hearing that because basically what the rabbis were doing was they were taking some scriptures and they were putting them together and they were making this statement. And it appears that there were at least three things that they were doing that were a problem. One of the things that they were doing is they were kind of saying, don't perjure yourself, but in these other situations, if you you fall short of your word, in some cases it's okay, don't worry about it. As long as you don't purge yourself in a court of law, you're okay. A lot of politicians have this mindset. In fact, actually a lot of politicians, they purchase themselves and they don't care at all, okay? But in other words, they're like, okay, if I take this stand, I'll speak the truth here, but everything else is kind of up for interpretation. He's saying that's wrong. Period. It's wrong. Don't do it, okay? Another thing that they were doing is they were saying, well, I, I, I swear by, you know, the temple, or I swear by Jerusalem, or I swear by my head. And they had these different levels of oaths based on something and it was like this system it was like this is a really strong vow and this was fairly strong vow and this is a moderately strong vow and this is well this is just like shaking someone's hand and this is like yeah i'll do my best he says that's not the way you give your word third problem that they had was that they were going to this level at times that it was completely unnecessary by the way if a person feels compelled to tell you that I don't believe you unless you swear an oath, you know what they're actually saying? We know people lie and we think you're lying or you're going to lie, so we're going to make you feel the weight of your commitment. Okay. So another way to put that is, uh, the reason that we do this in a court of law is because we know that people lie all the time. And it's almost like the law is saying, We'll let you lie in most circumstances, but in this one we won't because justice is involved. So, what's that saying? It's saying people are dishonest. And we've chosen to kind of just like live like that. It's like an allowment that we make in our society. And by the way, historically, societies have made these allowments because people are dishonest. What does God do? He takes us back to the standard. Just like he did with marriage. He's like, hold on, what is marriage? Let's talk about that, okay? You know, what is lust? What is at the heart of murder? It's anger. He goes back to the standard. And he says, that's what you need to consider. Not all the allowances that society makes about things. That's not the standard. So the fact is, we don't find this in Scripture in the same way that the, the, the rabbis were saying, you know, murder, but not hatred. Adultery, but not lust. Divorce, for any reason. For swearing, but not dishonesty in everyday life. Jesus is saying that's not the way we're supposed to live. This is not the way that we're supposed to conduct ourselves. This is not the way of a disciple of Christ. This is not a way that conforms to God's expectations and his laws. So, second question. What does it mean to forswear? I already mentioned this. But he has the idea of perjuring oneself. Swearing to an oath to speak the truth and then failing to do it as you had promised. So someone stands up, they, 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 they swear an oath, and then they, they lie. Okay? Now, in a legal system, there are actually laws that can be pursued because if someone perjures themselves, then essentially what they're doing is they're presenting the possibility of a miscarriage of justice because we make judgment based on testimonies. And if a testimony is false then we are going to be led astray in our judgment. And so it's a very serious matter. And that's why the law has that. That's what he means by forswear. Well, what is an oath? An oath is a formal promise that obligates someone to fulfill their word or experience some serious consequence for their unfaithfulness. I'll give you an example. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16, it says this. Men verily swear by the greater... And an oath for confirmation is to them that end of all strife. So, someone swears an oath by God, and they're saying, you hold me accountable if I've lied. That's essentially what they're saying, okay? And by the way, this was a pagan practice as well. People would swear by their gods. If you remember the story of David and Goliath, David goes out, and what does Goliath do? He curses David by his gods, Okay, in other words, when we talk about David and Goliath. We're talking about this battle, not just between a boy, a young man, and this massive giant. But we're talking about a battle between the gods of the Philistines, idols, and the one true God. And what does David say? He says that God is going to give me your head. <laughs> That's essentially what he said, right? So Goliath curses by his gods. David says, my God's going to take you out and we see who won, right? What does that do? That tells you who ultimately is the stronger in that situation. So that's what an oath is. Swearing by one who is greater. And I'm going to give you some examples. For instance, an example like the covenant of marriage. Let let me give you a couple couple of examples. Here we go. Ruth chapter 1 verse 17. Where thou diest will I die. There will I be buried. And listen to what Ruth says here. She says, The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. What does that mean? If I break my word, then God judges me. That's what she's saying. By the way, this is a great indication that, that Ruth was taking the God of Israel to be her God. Okay? Because when she swears this oath by the Lord, she's saying, That's my God, not the gods that I grew up with. That's my God. 1 Samuel 3.17, this is an interesting one. What is the thing that the Lord hath said unto thee? I pray thee, hide it not from me. This is Eli talking to Samuel, and he's just a boy. God do so to thee, and more also, if thou hide anything from me of all the things that he said unto thee. Now, that's a kind of interesting one. Eli's basically saying, if you hide from me what, what he said... Then God punishes you. And he's like, well, actually, what God said was he's punishing you. It's kind of an awkward thing to think about. But you see the invoking of God's name in the situation. 1 Kings 2.23, Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me and more also, if Adonijah hath not spoken this word against his own life. Now, if you don't know the story, God, or God, David warned his son Solomon of Adonijah. He said, Adonijah is dangerous. You better watch him. And if he deals, we could say, unfaithfully, then you know how to deal with him. And this is an example of it. He says, God is going to judge me if I don't deal with this. But Paul says something like this as well in Romans one, verse, or 9 verse 1. He says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience bearing witness in the Holy Ghost. 1 Timothy 2.7, I am ordained a preacher and apostle, I speak the truth in Christ, I lie not, teacher of the Gentiles, to faith and verity. So what you can see is that even in the New Testament era, there are times where people to strengthen the statement that they're making, they say, I say this with God as my witness, that what I'm telling you is true. Marriage covenant is an example of this, Matthew 19.6. They are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Malachi 2.15, did not he make one? Speaking of God. So, you know, when we, when we exchange marriage vows at a wedding, we are, in some sense, doing this very thing. We are, we are swearing an oath. People don't think of it this way. But they are making this commitment to their spouse... Before God in the presence of witnesses. It's a very sacred thing. You know, some people when they get married, they don't think twice about it. Some people when they get married, they're terrified as they think about the level of this commitment. Probably a balance between those should be good, okay? Where we feel the weight and the seriousness of this matter, but it's also a wonderful thing. There are other examples of covenants. Exodus 24 verse 7. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the audience of the people and they said, all that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. Deuteronomy 4.26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land. You shall not prolong your days upon it, but utterly be destroyed. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you. I've set before you life and death, blessing and Cursing, choose life that thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God and obey his voice and cleave unto the Lord. Obviously, we see this in legal situations as well. So that moves me to another question. So why do people do this? Or why do they feel compelled? The answer is it strengthens people's confidence and their commitment to truth and to their willingness to follow through with their commitment. It binds them to consider not only their obligation to man, but also to the God that they serve. Now, we understand this, but but here's the question. Shouldn't we always feel obligated to speak the truth? The answer is, of course. Shouldn't we always say, if I shake your hand, say I'm going to do this, that we follow through with it because we understand our obligation before God? Whether we speak his name or not, shouldn't we think in such a way? Should people ever wonder like is, this like, is this like a first degree promise or a third degree promise? It's a promise, okay? This is so important. So it moves us to truth number three. Christ commands us not to justify unfaithfulness in our words. Here's what he says in verse 34. He says, But I say unto you, Swear not at all. Then in verse 37. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Pretty simple. He says you don't need this. Just say the truth. If you say you're going to do something, do it. If you say you're not going to do something, don't do it. Very simple. That's what he's saying. And this command is built on several other texts of Scripture. For instance, two of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Now, what does it mean to take God's name in vain? It doesn't say say his name in vain. Okay, We tend to think in terms of that this commandment is forbidding using god's name irreverently and it is true that it is using god's name irreverently but what is the nature of that using god's name irreverently well perhaps a great example of that would be someone who makes a solemn promise using his name and then they totally ignore what they just said perfect example of someone doing that or someone saying i'm a christian and as a christian I know I'm supposed to be faithful and my word is my bond and I fear God, okay? It's like a person who, they give you the, their business card and they say, yeah, Christian business owner. You see the little fish right there? And then what do they do? They go and they teach you. <laughs> and they do, they do sloppy work. And they're like, well, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, you know, cut me a little slack. I mean, are you using God's name so that you can get a pass? I mean, what are you doing? Yeah, great example of, of, such, an, of such a thing. So this is, Part of what they're saying is built on this idea of taking the name of God and your association with Him and misusing it, treating it lightly, cheaply. Second commandment that this would also apply with is verse 16 of Exodus 20. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Now, what is the context of someone bearing a false witness? Well, it could be you're sitting in your living room and one child is coming to you about another child and the report they're giving is not exactly true. All right, very common situation. Happens all the time in my house, all right? I feel like a judge sometimes. I got to like sit down and figure all this out. Okay, all right, cross-examination. Question number one. What is, okay, you got to do this sometimes. Well, he's thinking about legal context. And if you think about it this way, If this person is accusing this person of something and it's in the legal realm, guess what? It's serious. And if this person is accusing this person and this person is right and this person is wrong, there's consequence. Guess what? Serious consequences. Okay? No small thing. If you have to lawyer up, if you end up in a courtroom, you're going to be paying fines, you're going to be paying lawyers Potential jail time. All kinds of different issues. I I mean, I guess today, you know, jury's out. You never know what's going to happen these days, okay? However, if it's going into that arena, serious consequences. Now, if this person brings an accusation against this person, and the accusation they're bringing is false, and they're able to convince what happens to this person. This person is treated unjustly. Prison, paying fees. By the way, if this is a frivolous lawsuit, okay, this person has to burn a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money, just to fight the nonsense. Okay, So, amazingly, in their system, if this person brought a false accusation and it was frivolously false, guess what happened to this person? The consequence that this person would have gotten comes back. I think it's a good practice, to be totally honest with you. But the idea is that you do not bear a false witness against your neighbor because someone's going to make a judgment based upon your testimony. And the job of the jury and the job of the judge is to make a righteous assessment of the situation. In fact, in our legal system, we are supposed to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. Why is that? Well, because we would rather... Have mischaracterization, a miscarriage of justice on the one side where something that actually happened that was wrong but cannot be proven, we leave it in the hands of God because we believe that God is going to ultimately set the record straight someday, or we would rather that than someone brings a charge and an innocent person is punished unjustly. Again, God will set the record straight. But the question is, how does that happen? So in our court system, we take very seriously the the, the burden of proof is not to defend your innocence, but to prove guilt. And so in this situation, what we're seeing is that bringing a charge that is false is very, very serious. And so this is a part of what is being stated in these verses. Leviticus 19.12, he says, Ye shall not swear by my name falsely. Neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God, I am the Lord. You know what's amazing? Leviticus 19.12 almost sounds like we're taking Exodus 27 and Exodus 20.16 and we're putting them together and saying, this is it. Kind of blends the two together, okay? Numbers 30 verse 2. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. Now, this morning, we were in Proverbs 17 because we do, we do a proverb a day uh, in our family on, on school days, I guess. I'll put it that way, okay? So we're sitting down there and I ask them, what day of the week is it? So that I remember. And then I ask them, what day of the month is it? Okay, so I remember. And I say, all right, what proverb are we going to do today? Proverbs 17. Well, in Proverbs 17, one of the proverbs, it warns against somebody Going and striking hands. Striking hands to make sure they're friend. I said, What does that mean? It doesn't mean you're hitting somebody. Striking hands means you're shaking hands and you're saying, You don't have the ability to pay for this. This person does not believe you can pay them back. I've got the money. You're my friend. I'll put the money aside as surety so that you can take this debt and then I'll, I'll allow you to do it. And so in other words, my, phys- my strength, uh, economically, financially, whatever, is going to allow you to get a loan that you really shouldn't be able to get. <laughs> okay? I said, the Bible says don't do that. Why? Well, because you are bound by your word. You now have to take on the risk of someone... Nobody wants to take the risk on. Wisely so. <laughs> you're, because they're your friend, you're going to take the risk. Don't do that. That's what the Bible's saying. And I said, more than that, more than it being foolish, God says that before you make a commitment, you better think it through because you're responsible to follow through with your commitment. So we take that little principle in Proverbs, and this is a great example, great application of this. Your word... Should matter. If you say you're going to do something, you should do it. If you make a commitment, you should follow through with it. So what were they doing? Well, they had established a series of oaths that communicated their level of seriousness about their commitment. By heaven, by earth. Of course, you know, heaven is is more lofty than earth. So we know that that's a more serious commitment than the earth one. By Jerusalem, that's a serious one as well. Because that's the holy city. That's our capital By the head, well, it's my head, so... What are they saying? They're saying, well, there's some levels of seriousness. In other words, the truth is a little flexible. Now, is that a good practice? The answer is, well, no, it's wrong. (coughs) How is their practice revealing a wrong view of their commitments? One is their commitment to truth was flexible. Their obligation to their promise was flexible. By the way, what happens when the truth is flexible? You can't believe anybody. Very simple. When somebody lies to you, do you trust them the next time they tell you they've done something? <laughs> of course I do. Well, then you get, you know, messed up twice, right? No, you, you distrust them because they've broken that commitment. Their obligation is flexible. When somebody says, I'll do that, and then they don't follow through, do you believe them the next time? Do you you go to bat for somebody who has fallen through on their word over and over and over again? I hope not. So what's the point? Society falls apart. How do you build relationships? How do you do business? Well, you can't do these things properly when people are dishonest and don't follow through with commitments. Yet that was the practice of their day. Their words were ultimately not bound by their commitment to God. These are people who said we're religious people. They said, we believe in the one true God. They would speak the Shema. And they would would talk about their religious credentials and practices. Yet, they were flexible with truth and commitment. You could not take their word seriously. Their practice was not reflecting God's righteousness and the commitment to truth and justice. They were not there. Here's the question. Are we any different today? We're really not. Somebody makes a commitment. How much can you really rely on such a commitment? Well, if someone doesn't have a guiding principle that's bigger than them, the fact is, it's a huge risk. Truth number four. Christ summarizes the topic. In verse 37, he simply puts it this way let your communication be yay yay nay nay not not a donkey okay if you say yes then do it if you say no don't do it such a simple principle whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil and it's interesting the way that the language is is it gives the impression it's not just evil as like a concept but it's evil in a person okay okay Who is the father of all lies? It's Satan himself. And so he says, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Satan overthrows justice by softening our attitude towards truth. An inability to trust others is painfully destructive in society and in all relationships. If a marriage has dishonesty in it, guess what? Tears it apart. You know, when our kids are dishonest with us, what does it do? Tears apart our confidence in them. <coughs> when a parent is dishonest with their children, or, yeah, I'm going to do that, and then they don't follow through. Yeah, I'm going to do that, I don't follow through. Yeah, I'm going to do that, they don't follow through. Guess what? There comes a point where kids don't, don't believe their parents anymore. And you ask them, why should they? So how do we put this all together? What, what is the practical way to live in the light of these truths? Let me give you some final thoughts. God exercises righteous judgment and he expects us to do the same. You cannot make a just ruling in a dispute without the full picture of the truth. If I have two people and one saying this and one saying this and they're different, they're not both right. They might both be wrong. Uh, They may be uh, equally wrong and partially right, okay, But the simple fact is, if I'm going to make a judgment about a situation, I've got to know the facts. I've got to ask some questions. I've got to analyze whether or not what they're telling me is true. And if what I'm hearing is not true, guess what? I'm not going to be able to make a good judgment. God is faithful to his word and expects us to be the same. As people who bear his name. I mean, we are image bearers, one, because we're human. And number two, we are Christians. We are followers of Christ. We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. We've been cleansed. We belong to the Lord. He calls us saints. We should live like it. We should be reliable and demonstrate a visible expression of God's righteous character. You know, what our kids should see in us is when I say, Hey, kids, God is trustworthy. You know what? In their mind, they should never be like, But you're not, so is God like you? (laughs) That shouldn't happen, okay? They should go, you know what? When my dad says God is trustworthy, my mom says God is trustworthy, and he's faithful to his word, you know what? Every time they say, I'm not going to do this, they don't do it. Every time they say, I'm going to do this, I do it. Every time they make a commitment, they follow through with it. I trust them. Guess what? In their mind, they go, that must be what God's like. That's the way it's supposed to be. We should be measured and cautious when we consider our commitments. We shouldn't just rush to say, I'll do that. We should consider what's involved. We should ask the question is it really a good idea? Can I follow through with this? There are some good things that we don't have the time to do. We should just say no. We shouldn't follow through, or we, shouldn't, we should follow through if we commit to do such a thing. And so, what, is, what does it do? Is it, it causes us to be more measured. In the commitments that we make. Lastly, our commitment to truth and faithfulness to our word should be so consistent that no one would ever feel <coughs> compelled to need to call us to make an oath. That's really the way that we should live our lives. That's really what God is calling us back to. He's saying, let your yes be yes and your no, no. You make a commitment. Follow through that. Well, what if things kind of, you know, start getting a little troublesome and I didn't realize that this is the way things would play out and maybe I don't have to do it. Did you say you'd do it or not? It's important for us to be people of our word. Faithful, reliable, trustworthy. What we speak is consistent with the facts. May God help us to be that. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the word and I pray that you will help us to live faithfully in the light of what is before us. Help us to be faithful men and faithful women. May our word be our bond. May we be faithful to those commitments. I pray that you'll give us strength where we have stumbled. Help us to admit our failures when that's what we need to do. Help us to establish good practices where we have stumbled. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.